You're with Sean Jung and Where the Veil Grows Thin, an exploration of the sacred moments of our human experience in life and death, joy and sorrow, birth and end of life. It's the unscripted instant when the heart opens, the face-to-face moments with the divine. When I was working in hospice, the opportunity came up to offer an additional training to our volunteers so we could provide the service of sitting with patients who were actively dying. Sometimes families want to know they can count on hospice to be a stronger presence as their loved one draws closer to death. Having volunteers comfortable with and educated in the dying process would make this expectation more reliably available to our families. The drain on resources for any hospice agency can be extreme when the demands are the highest, the first 72 hours after admission, and then again, the final days to hours before death. So I put together a training for any interested volunteers based loosely on the work of Barbara Carnes' booklet, The Eleventh Hour. We thought the interest would come primarily from our volunteers, but it turned out there was an interest among others as well. Staff members who were new to end-of-life work and community members who wanted to know more about the opportunities available through volunteering with hospice. Eleventh Hour, also known as Sitting Vigil, addresses the needs of the person doing the work of dying, as well as the needs of others who might be present, such as family and friends. Because this was offered through hospice, we were focused primarily on expected deaths, a death that has been forecast and predicted, a death that is being planned for. There's a big difference between an expected death and a snatchaway death. But even in tragic, unexpected death, if there are moments of life still remaining and you are there, you are with someone in their 11th hour. One of the really great things about Barbara's books are how easily they can be woven in at a time when there are things happening that are foreign and unfamiliar, like the imminent death of a loved one. Her books are short and small and have large print and are easy to read. These are all important details under the circumstances when they might be used by family members. It didn't take long once I started working with people at end of life to understand that we do not serve them well when we think we know. There is no one way to approach dying and no one way to approach the moment of death. There is no one-size-fits-all recipe for the changes that can happen in someone's final hours. We have to learn to feel our way into each moment. So what does it mean to be in the presence of someone who is actively dying? What kinds of things do you think you might expect to see? What kinds of sounds do you think you might hear? And what do they mean? And in all of it, how do you support both the process and the players involved? And how do you care for yourself? 
it begins with what we do in our own lives before we ever enter the home or the room of one who is dying. And then remembering and honoring that wherever it is we are entering, it is sacred space. It is holy and divine. So learning to read the emotional tone of someone's home or their room in a facility or a room in an emergency department of a hospital where someone is dying requires that we first learn to be still and listen. And to listen well, we must first become comfortable with silence. And we must leave what we think we know outside the door. Or even better, we could leave it in the car, or we could leave it at home. An end-of-life doula is a person experienced in deathbed guidance. Every death is unique. There is no one way or right way to die. To truly be of service to a family or an individual who has been told that they will die requires having the time to get to know them. And it's time that will not be hurried, time that is relaxed and open and repeated, time that takes time feeling our way into it. As more and more of us become comfortable with talking about end of life, we might pique the interest of more and more people who want to know how they too can develop a friendlier relationship with death perhaps even going as far as to embrace planning for their own leaving and opening a conversation around it with those they love. When we are invited in with plenty of time to know all the players, not just the one who will die, but also the ones who love them most and the ones who, if the dying person is at home, the ones who will be providing the bulk of the hands-on care, then it is a beautiful dance to watch unfold. The teachers in this work, the true masters, are not people like me. They are the ones who die. So being an experienced student of end of life means being present at many deaths. Just as being an experienced student of midwifery means being present at many births. It's difficult experience to get. I remember working with a social worker early in hospice who was fresh out of school. She wanted so desperately to experience the moment of someone's death. She had never worked in end-of-life care and had never experienced the death of anyone. No one in her family had ever died, no close friends. She was eager and anxious to be bedside at a death. But the patients just kept dying, and she kept missing the deaths. Because it's not as simple as saying, boy, I sure would like to be here when you die. We knew she wanted to be called if we saw that someone was very close to dying. But that is sometimes the moment when the circle shrinks to include just those most necessary. Everyone else sort of fades off into the woodwork, standing guard at the gate to allow the intimacy of the moment of death to be shared among those who will be most impacted by the loss. Doing all of that, but staying close by for the immediate aftershock and any necessary business that must be attended to. 
I have always felt that to be chosen by the one dying as one of those to bear witness to it is something indescribably sacred. Even when multiple people are present, if you are among them, you have been chosen and you have been gifted something rare. So you can see how finding people who have had the privilege of attending a lot of different deaths to be a resource for those wanting to do end-of-life work is hard, especially in rural areas like the one we live in up here in western Colorado. My personal experiences with death have not always been with expected death. Experiencing sudden, unexpected deaths as a hospital chaplain has helped me feel even more strongly the need to talk about dying. I can tell you that I will take an expected death over a sudden death any day. And I say that because of the work I've done as a grief counselor and seeing the devastation left in the wake of those unexpected deaths. And I have seen the benefit of having time to wrap things up when we get the chance to. And we all have the chance to do that. Many people will say to me they hope to just go quietly in their sleep, almost as though they think if they just go quietly in their sleep, it will go unnoticed. That they can leave and that no one will even notice that they have left. And dying suddenly and unexpectedly doesn't have to be devastating for the ones left behind. If we've been living our lives in the awareness that we will one day leave. And we can talk about that more at another time. Dying is not so much a medical event as it is a communal event, even when it happens in a medical setting. I once sat with a young woman as she sat with her grandmother, who was dying. Her grandmother was in the hospital and on comfort care. This means that no heroic measures were being taken. She had no tubes or IVs. Her death was expected, and she was being kept comfortable through the use of medicines administered sublingually beneath her tongue. She was also receiving comfort through the gentle hands that caressed and soothed her from the integrated therapy staff and through the presence of this particular granddaughter. The patient was 100 years old. The granddaughter was explaining to me that she really needed to work the next day, a work day that would involve driving to a town 90 miles away. She was reporting feeling very stressed about it and seemed really conflicted over it. And then she said, nothing but a total emergency will keep me from going to work tomorrow. And I said, well, what would a total emergency look like to you? And she looked at me kind of funny and said, well, if my grandmother dies, almost as though I was some kind of fool, which I'm sure she thought I was. Well, her grandmother was dying. She was not expected to live more than 24 hours. I was reminded in that moment that to many people, death is a total emergency, even when we know it's coming. So I asked her to talk to me about her grandmother, to tell me stories about her, to tell me what it was like growing up across the street from her what she had learned about being a woman, a wife, a mother, 
from the time that she had gotten to spend at her grandmother's side. The stories that came forth were healing reminders to her that an awful lot of her grandmother was still going to be here even after she leaves that old body behind. And even though her grandmother was in a coma and heavily sedated, I encouraged her, the granddaughter, to take the time she had that night to sit by her grandmother and tell her some of the things she feels most grateful for in her relationship with her. I was hoping to help her feel a little less like her grandmother dying was going to be a total emergency, because really, it wasn't going to be. Her grandmother did die the next day, and the granddaughter did go to work. And when the news reached her that she was, that her grandmother had died, she was able to thank the person calling and then express her gratitude for everything everyone had done to ease her grandmother's final transition. She felt no need to turn around and come screaming back to town. Her work with her grandmother was complete. So 11th hour companioning can look different depending on the circumstances and the geography of where a person is taking their leave. I've heard it said that a comfortable person will almost always have a peaceful death. And I say almost always because there are exceptions to everything. And not all discomfort is biological. Not all pain responds to medicine. Some struggles happen deep within a person's heart and soul. My observation has been that dying is not easy. It's hard work, just like being born is hard work. But watching someone do it with grace is inspiring. Again, the masters are the ones who are doing the dying. And when you have the honor of seeing it done well, you will never forget the experience. Just as I have never forgotten the way my own mom showed us how it can be done. When companioning one who is dying, words are usually less important than presence, just being there. As a support person to one who is dying, or the ones who love them, being comfortable with silence is a gift. I venture a guess that for most people, silence is not a comfortable experience, especially in the presence of other people. But silence is sometimes the only answer. Being quiet and at ease in stillness is a skill that can be learned through practice and experience. It doesn't mean there shouldn't be periods of great discourse when in the presence of one who is dying, but my experience has also been that as the one leaving moves closer to the moment of their final breath, that those who are present tend to use lower voices, softer lighting, quieter music. And as the sounds become gentler, as voices are lowered and movement about the room becomes more intentional, abrupt noises, hysterical crying, harsh or loud voices are disconcerting, alarming, and sometimes jolting to someone doing the work of dying. But I don't think that means that all expressions of grief need to be ushered into another room. 
I have been known to encourage families to think about moving any landline telephone that's in the patient's room because it could ring, and that's very jolting, and also turning off cell phones that might ring. Usually, very expressive signs of loss come after the death has occurred, sometimes immediately after. And at that point, there is no need to move that to another room or another part of the house. And there is no need to try to get the person expressing their grief to stop doing it. There may be need for a warm blanket across their shoulders at some point, or the need to offer them a glass of water or a warm or cool washcloth, but no need to move them to another room. Keening and wailing are beautiful expressions of grief that, like silence, can be uncomfortable for some people. Many people have the instinct to shush these displays of sorrow, to try to hush the person doing it, to make it go away, because we're not comfortable being in the presence of so much grief all at once. An effective guide to a dying person and their family will be able to flow with whatever is happening and somehow be like a rudder for a ship whose mast has snapped off in a storm. Because sometimes that's exactly how it feels when someone we love just died. I'm going to stop now at part one for the 11th hour. I've broken this into two parts because it was too long as one part. Um, I've gotten a lot of feedback from people how much they enjoy my podcasts being so short. And this one now is approaching about 18 minutes and I don't want to go any longer. So um, next week, part two. And thank you for being here. I appreciate the audience and welcome feedback or emails from people who have questions or want to hear about certain things. Please be in touch at sean at seanjung.com. And until then, thank you for uh, being here. And I hope you'll join me again where the veil grows thin.